War erupts in Israel and Gaza following violent attacks by the terrorist group Hamas. How long can this horrendous violence go on? Newsmax contributor and foreign policy expert Dr. Walid Faraz is here with analysis. And how will the violence affect the dwindling Christian presence in the Holy Land? President of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land, Father Peter Vasco, weighs in. And the Synod on Synodality rolls on this week, and so does our Synod Central. The Papal Posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal, join us from Rome. And comedian and Fox News contributor Tom Shalhoub talks about his hilarious award-winning solo stage show, The World Over, begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's begin. On Saturday, the terrorist group controlling Gaza unleashed a series of rocket strikes against major cities in Israel. This was immediately followed by a violent incursion by Hamas ground forces. At least 2,300 are dead and several thousand injured in the days since the attacks began. 22 U.S. citizens are among the dead, and there now seems to be involvement by Hezbollah. Joining me with analysis is foreign policy expert at Newsmax and author of the new book, Iran, an imperialist republic, Dr. Walid Ferris. Thank you for being here. The attacks by Hamas me. on Israel caught Israeli intelligence by surprise. Uh, I guess they also caught U.S. intelligence by surprise. How did this intelligence failure happen? Well, the first answer, Raymond, is how did it happen in Pearl Harbor? How did it happen on 9-11? These thrusts by terrorists, because they're small groups, can happen. It actually happened to the Israelis in 1973. The issue here is uh, why were not Israel and the United States now and probably other countries prepared for it, understanding that the Iran regime has dedicated time and money, by the way, money that we have transferred to them, which is another chapter of, of this episode, for all that time, and they haven't been able to, to, to stop these incursions. The attacks came from land, air, and sea. How long would it have taken Hamas to prepare for an attack like this, Waleed? Well, I want to be frank and honest with your audience, with the American public in general. From what we know, from what I know, from what I have seen, it's been years that mm. the Iranian-backed Hezbollah and Hamas have been preparing for these operations. And the worst thing about it, Raymond, is that they spoke about it. There are posts on social media. So, you, you know, our intelligence community only can harvest these, but probably they need more protocols of ensuring that this is happening. But the idea was there. Now, Hamas, in this case, in my view, have targeted Israel, number one, to deter the Israeli population, thinking that they are divided because of what we know has happened along this year. Mm. Second, because they felt that this administration is not going to support Israel and because of our divisions. And the most important geopolitically, Raymond, is that Israel and Saudi Arabia were getting closer, closer to a deal. And that would have been catastrophic for the Iran regime. Nothing for Hamas, 
but the yeah. Iran regime. And that's why they ordered Hamas, in my view, and Hezbollah possibly. What, what role do you think Hezbollah and Iran played in this debacle? I mean, uh, Hamas, of course, denies their involvement. Hezbollah, though uninvolved, has offered uh, to, quote, help if necessary. But we now have reports that they are involved. These are my books and articles for the last 18 years. Uh, there is a unity command, a you know integrated command between Hamas, between Hezbollah in Lebanon and their allies, between the Assad militias, and of course between the uh, Iran-backed militias in Iraq. And who is the top controller is the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. We all remember Soleimani and why Trump ordered the elimination of Soleimani because he was organizing from A to Z attacks against American troops in Syria, in Iraq, attacks against these minorities, and of course, attacks against Israel. They have an integrated mm. command. The Pentagon and the agencies understand what that is, and probably they know. But there is even an article in the Wall Street Journal, a detection of last intelligence, that just before this attack, they were meeting in Beirut to organize this attack. If you allow me one second, the timing of the attack is also yeah. of great importance, Raymond. They waited, that's Iran and their allies, until all of the transfers, the money of the $6 billion hit the banking, the banking system in Qatar, then they could do it. An Egyptian intelligence official has said Jerusalem ignored repeated warnings that Hamas was, quote, planning something big, which included a direct notice from Cairo's intelligence minister to the Israeli prime minister. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu has denied receiving any such warning, calling it fake news. What do you make of that report? Look, in the world of intelligence, we'll only know after 10, 20, 30 years in books and memoirs and what have you. We're going to wait for the Netanyahu memoirs and many people here in the United States. I would say that Israel receives warning. It receives warning all the time and not just from Egypt, from Jordan sometimes and sometimes from Saudi, the UAE. By the way, the UAE, through the Abraham Accord, has a security arrangement and, and an exchange of information to receive is one thing. To actually believe it's credible, to make some take some measures, that's a different story. And yes, there could be a failure. I mean, I'm not ne neglecting this, but the issue is yeah. much wider yeah. than just the failure because Israel had a failure in 1973 and then it won the war. There have been protests among Israelis for months now against the government led by Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, you, if I heard you right earlier, you believe Hamas took advantage of the problems within Israel to launch this attack now, hoping that the public would be divided. Let me tell you something. I mean, I have dedicated three to four decades of my life to study how the jihadists operate. I have four books. We discussed them with you, mm -hmm. obviously. Yep. And it was even mentioned in social media and beyond social media, on satellite TV in Arabic, obviously that any division, any deep division inside Israel inspires Iran and their allies to conduct. Not, it's not the only reason for why they conduct, but this is an adjacent reason. Oh, they are divided. They're going to take time, basically, to make a decision. By that time, we'll go in. But there is another division, not just in the, within Israel. They have analyzed our deep divisions here, and everybody outside the United States mm -hmm. understand and that would be what's happening between, you know, the current administration, the past administration, Congress itself and Congress and the administration, the role of our media. They have analyzed all of that. So we are weaker in terms of making decisions on national security. And the Israelis were disoriented by all 
what happened uh, under, you know, under the previous months, as you just mentioned. Right. On Wednesday, the former Hamas chief, Khaled Mesal, he called for protests and jihad around the world to take place Mm -hmm. on Friday in support Mm -hmm. of the Palestinians. He specifically called on neighboring countries, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, to do their duty and support Palestinians. He added, to all scholars who teach jihad, to all who teach and learn, this is a moment of application of theories. What do you make of this call for protests and jihad? Will we see violence in the streets and against Jews, not only in the Middle East, but worldwide? Raymond, um, we have heard it. Everybody dealing with the Middle East, should they be from the Middle East or from the United States and either you know, Western Europe or other parts of the world? Yes, he made that speech. But the funny, I don't want to say funny, the dramatic thing about it is that he had made that speech before. Many times he has been inspired mm-hmm. by let them write down, Sheikh, uh, the Sheikh inspirer of the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Kardawi. Al-Kardawi said word for word for what Khalid Mish'al has said. He said, jihad has different forms, jihad in the jihadi sense. Uh, one form is to protest. Another form is to have urban disturbances. A third form would be fighting on the ground. And a fourth one would be suicide. I mean, it's on Al Jazeera. It's not something secret. So Khalid Mish'al very naturally yeah. says, yeah, I need your help. I need protests and I need suicide bombers. I need everything. Yeah, scary. Addressing the nation from the White House on Tuesday, President Biden confirmed that among the dead are at least 14 Americans. Then he added this. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself and respond to this attack. When Congress returns... We're going to ask them to take urgent action to fund the national security requirements of our critical partners. Waleed, is the U.S. prepared to move additional assets as as needed? I mean, we have billions of dollars going to Ukraine. Uh, We have armament reserves that are at a low point, given that all the, the armaments that have been shipped to Ukraine. Do we have enough to arm Israel? We do have enough armament to arm many people, but we're going to look at the strategy. It's not just about, you know, floating an aircraft carrier and a task force and another one. It's what is it that they're going to do? Why are we spending all that money if what we're going to do is symbolical? I mean, I spoke with Israelis, spoke with other people in the Middle East. Israel really want one thing, and I think all the resistance movement against the Iran regime and their allies are saying one thing. Mr. President, You want to support, but against whom? Why did he not mention that the Iran regime, to whom his administration has directed $6 billion just two weeks ago? So we send money to Iran, and we move an aircraft carrier to support our friends who have been targeted by Iran. There is something illogical in this position. So if we are ready to engage and be responsible against Hezbollah and Hamas and the other forces, then yes, let him explain to the public, let him explain to the Israelis. But if it's the issue of sending one aircraft carrier or all the expenses, and then nothing is going to happen, if it's about just deterrence, at least tell us deterrence against whom. Pronounce the term Iran, cut down the Iran deal, and then maybe Israelis and most Americans will say, okay, but it's not convincing. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 a policy that contradicts itself. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed a full scale invasion of Gaza. 
On Tuesday, President Biden pointed out that Hamas does not stand for Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination, but solely for the annihilation of the state of Israel. Will Israel's total invasion of Gaza increase the likelihood of regional involvement, meaning external threats to Israel, adversaries coming in and joining this battle? Raymond, there are multiple things with this situation. Number one, yes, Islamic Jihad and Hamas wants the annihilation, the destruction of the state of Israel. They're not shy about it. It's in their charter. So point is done. Number two, Israel will have to do something about it because in the laws of wars, balance of power, if they kill a thousand of your uh, civilians in this case, it was not a battle. It was a slaughter. It was a genocidal act. And you don't react. You don't reduce the threat. You don't eliminate the threat. They're going to do it again and again. And every time it's going to be bigger. The Israelis themselves have told the world. I mean, there were casualties in five, six civilians sometimes, sometimes with their rockets up to maybe 50 civilians, but thousand plus that that that's if the israelis themselves before the americans everybody else know that they need to disrupt dismantle and destroy hamas mm. but here's the problem the bridge to cross to get to that goal is very dangerous invading uh the strip the gaza strip with the classical warfare that's the only warfare they can do at this point in time plus some james bond's operations that are needed but that will going to be costly now, it's really a very tough decision on the Israelis. And I think the mood of the Israeli public is they have to do it, even if they have to suffer casualties. Allow me one addition that is not, I have not made that very statement Very quickly, yet. I'm almost out of time. Go ahead. There are many people against Hamas in Gaza. So there needs to be an outreach by them, by us, to this opposition and enlist them in the struggle against Hamas. Walid Ferris, we'll leave it there. Iran, an imperialist republic and U.S. policy is available now in bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Walid. Thank you very much. He is president of the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land, and he joins us tonight to discuss the challenges of maintaining the Christian presence in the land of Christ's birth and ministering to them in the midst of war. Please welcome Father Peter Vasco. He joins us from our D.C. studio. Father Peter, thank you for being here. Uh, I want to get to your thoughts on what we're seeing with this Hamas incursion into Israel, the unspeakable violence that has ensued. The Pope, the Latin Patriarch, other church leaders in the Holy Land have called for calm in the wake of this October 7th surprise by Hamas. What are you hearing from your people on the ground? Well, before I even, I'd like to say a few words before that. You know, I've been in the Holy Land for the last 36 years. And I came in like in 1986. And during that time frame, there's been a cycle of violence that continues on. It started in uh, 75 years ago when the state of Israel was declared by the United Nations a country. Uh, The problem is, is that, you know, there's there's no there's always a, a problem of of constant constant conflict between the two people the Israelis and the Palestinian Muslims and this goes on and on and on I think part of part of the problem is that both sides uh, the Israelis and the uh, Palestinian Muslims look upon each other uh, as and distrust distrust each other. Uh, and and really sometimes hate each other that they have passed on this this uh, hatred and mistrust to their children's children 
and it's become embedded in the psychological DNA of both sides. And I say there will never be peace in that land, and that's a very sad thing to say. So dealing with, uh, with that in mind, dealing with our Christians, I was speaking with the customs of the Holy Land uh, this morning, and he said that everything is closed, nobody's walking out in the streets. They've been actually as the government has sequestered the religious to stay in their convents and churches, and the streets of Jerusalem are filled with uh, Israeli police. So it's another, like COVID, where nobody can move around. It's a very sad situation. And you have to understand that wow. even the, the Palestinian Christians, because they're Arabs and they're Palestinians, if they go walking out, maybe they'll be arrested. Uh, needless to say, the, the Palestinian Muslims are, are very, very uh, afraid uh, to, to move out of, the, out of their houses and walk around. So it's, a, it's like a ghost town in Jerusalem right now. They have also closed wow. off uh, villages like Ein Karim, Bethanina, Jericho, uh, Ramle uh, to the public. Uh, so it's, it's a very sad situation. And so, you know, all we do is we're asking, he's asking prayers for, for the people in the Holy Land, especially uh, for, for the Jews and for the, and for the Muslims, uh, for peace to, to uh, somehow reckon, be reconciled. And this needs, uh, I think, an international uh, uh, world involvement to speak to both sides. What's going to happen? I have no, I have no idea for the future. And it's very, very sad, uh, Raymond. Now, look, Father, I, uh, you know, I've said it before. You can dispute the land and have that conversation. That should be had diplomatically. You don't do that with a sword or by grabbing and killing civilians. I mean, this is, this is just, this set back, this sets back the Palestinian cause. Oh, I my think. gosh. You all know, all it, the peace no accords. what they yeah. thought they were doing. Yeah. Oh, it's what, 16 peace accords, starting with uh, the Oslo, with the Madrid. And nothing right. ever happened because either one side or the other never followed through for the future negotiations. And there's, your, there's our problem right there in a nutshell. Well, so, so for the moment, the holy sites are basically locked off. I mean, I, I just had a friend of mine who was uh, on, in pilgrimage. He was stuck there for days in the Holy Land with a group of, of uh, this is a priest, with a group of pilgrims. They just got out and got to Dubai today. Exactly. But uh, they couldn't go anywhere. They could go across the street, I think, and go to one shrine. Everything else was closed to them. Well, what we've been doing for the for the for the for the uh, pilgrims, uh, and also for the migrant workers, we've been uh, putting them in uh, in Nazareth and in Jerusalem, up in our Casanovas, free of charge, because they had nowhere to go to, and they didn't know where to go, and they they weren't going to pay additional price, additional. Uh, purchases of, of their rooms. So we have offered for those people, our Christians and migrant workers, uh, a free, a free uh, accommodation in our Casanovas. And that's the only thing we can basically do. As far as our Christians, uh, you know, there's no really, well, it's communication, but there's nothing that at this point in time that we can bring to them or do anything. But uh, I know in, in Gaza, you must have heard that uh, the, the, the 1,200 Christians, uh, a lot of them have gone, the Romans have been destroyed, and they've been in the Latin Patriarch churches in Gaza uh, to help mm. the people themselves. So it, it's a very, very, very volatile, very, very sad situation altogether. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and let's speak to that for a moment. When people hear about Christians in the Holy Land and the diminishing populations, where are they predominantly, Father? You deal and your foundation deals with these Palestinian Christians every day. Where are they? Where do they live? Well, basically, they, they, they come from Bethlehem. 
Uh, and about five, five, six years ago, 500 uh, families were leaving each year. OK, now that has gone down to about uh, it's slowed down to only about 200. So there's been a, a slight uh, decrease in, in that, which is uh, which is, you know, uh, better, not not good, but at least they're 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 finding hope in the future. But most of the problems where the where the uh, where the uh, decrease of Christians are coming from are from the, the village of Bethlehem for the most part and some from Jerusalem. The Latin Patriarchate has issued a statement, Father. I want you to react to this. It says unilateral decisions surrounding the status of religious sites and places of worship rattle religious sentiment and fuel even more hatred and extremism. It is therefore important to preserve the status quo of all the holy places in the Holy Land and in Jerusalem in particular. Here's my question. Can you explain to the audience what's meant here by the status quo? And do you fear that relationships between these various communities could be irreparably harmed as a result of the violence we're seeing? Well, the status quo is basically uh, when we when St. Francis came here, came here in 1218 uh, and, and, and established the, the Franciscan order as such. And it was something that of each of, of course, it was under the Muslim uh, Ottoman Empire, the, Muslim, the earlier uh, Muslim governments. Uh, and they, some of them recognized our, 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 our churches, recognized protection. Others, other sultans uh, killed, killed us, uh, and we continued on with that. But the, the status quo of 1852 is where, especially in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the Ottomans, because of uh, monetary, uh, I would say, contributions, uh, we were mm -hmm. the Greeks and the Armenians and the Latins were allowed to stay uh, based on how much money we gave the Ottoman Empire. And that status quo is very important. It's, it, it serves as a protection uh, for the Christian sites. Now, as you know, in the last year and a half, uh, we've had a very far right government, uh, Israeli government. And what's happening, we've had many uh, of our sanctuaries been, uh, have been uh, not destroyed, but have been coming in. Uh, there was one in deflagellation uh, where our Lord was 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 scourged, and they broke the statue of Christ. And luckily, one of our one of our say, uh, one of our security men, uh, you know, apprehended the culprit. Uh, he was arrested. Uh, police took him took him in, and we wanted to press charges. And they said to us the next day, "Oh well." He was mentally ill, so we put him on a plane back to the United States. Now, this has happened in several other occasions in different, in different uh, uh, churches, and they get the same response. Oh, this person was, you know, a sort of uh, mentally ill, so we had to leave him. I'm saying if I, for example, was, was visiting there as a Christian, as a Catholic, and I went to a synagogue and I tried to destroy something that is of a holy to, to the Jewish faith, I'd be put in jail. I wouldn't be saying, oh, something's wrong with me and uh, I have to go back to the United States. I'd be put in jail. It just seems that this thing is continuing going on. And also the problem of spitting. Uh, at the at the at the priests at the bishops that mm -hmm. is still going on now. Uh, so it, we I have a thought that with this far right government, maybe they're giving people the maybe settlers are giving that I don't know an opportunity to say oh, you know you can be legitimate. I, I have no idea, but it's very very scary for everyone, especially the Christians in the Holy Land, especially you know bishops being spit upon. 
uh, religious being spit upon, not every every day, but it's very frequent and it's very, very scary. And we're saying, who's 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 in charge of this? Uh, so that's another yeah. problem. So that's all part of keeping the status quo of keeping making sure that we're protected, et cetera. Uh, so how before I let you go, Father, how is your Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land serving both the, the visitors as well as the Palestinian Christians and the Christians in the Holy Land? What can you do in the midst of this violence when everything's locked down? You really can't do anything. I was talking to the cousins. What what are we actually doing uh, for the Christians? And the only thing he said at this point in time, as I said early in the in the program, that uh, they're giving they're opening up our Casanovas to uh, beleaguered travelers, to uh, migrant refugees, Jesus, etc. That's all we can do. I mean, uh, they're afraid to go out into the street, uh, into into the into the town. And so right now everything is like paralyzed and it's very sad. So there's nothing, anything active we can do because we're not supposed to be going outside anywhere. Father Peter Vasco, thank you for coming on. Thanks for your insight, which is uh, unique and original. And uh, the work of the Franciscan Foundation of the Holy Land, if you're interested in learning more, you can go to ffhl.org. Father Peter, thank you for being here. Raymond, thank you so much for your, your help. And now we go to Synod Central, joining me with an update on the first full week of the Synod on Synodality in Rome. I'm joined by the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Thank you both for being here. Uh, you, you know, Jens, you might call this our small group discussion. So uh, I'm going to initiate. Uh, earlier this week, participants in the Synod General Assembly gathered in Paul VI Hall to discuss Module B-1. So exciting. Introduced by the Relator General, Cardinal Hollerick. Uh, the theme is a communion that radiates how can we be more fully a sign and instrument of union with God and of the unity of all humanity? End quote. I didn't write that myself. That's a quote. Uh, three priority issues that they identify for this discussion. A synodal church are highlighted in this module. Uh, communion, mission, participation. Father, your thoughts on these discussion points of the week and what does that mean? What are they trying to achieve here? It's not very clear, Raymond. In fact, uh, this is the most scripted uh, synodal uh, plan that I've seen of any of the synods. But it's largely about uh, procedures and talking and listening. And, you know, some topics come up, but it's not quite clear how those are actually going to be implemented in the life of the church. So, uh, you know, this is something that is troubling because a synod is meant to give the participants the freedom to discuss what's on their mind, but they're being confined very clearly to this module plan. Uh, I don't think this is the way that uh, mature people who have lots of experience should be guided in a discussion of this sort. Yeah, it is very scripted, Bob. Uh, what, it, what is your take, and what are you hearing in Rome from those you've been talking to this week? Well, I actually reread that module this morning, and I have to say, I felt slightly drunk after I, I, I read it because I could make out all the words and I went back and I kind of parsed out sentence after sentence. But it's just kind of a piling up of, I don't know, almost metaphysical ideas, one on top of another on top of another. And um, 
for a synod that is supposed to be concrete and that is not supposed to be engaged with abstractions, it's the most abstract document you could almost uh, imagine. You know, we just heard uh, uh, the, today from Sandro Magister, who's one of the great Italian um, uh, Vaticanists here in Rome, that um, right. the way he put it in a, in a recent article is that the synod is, is composed of people who are talking to themselves and meanwhile, two-thirds of young people in Italy say they no longer believe in God. And so, you know, mission, participation, communion, these are all good ideas, but they seem to exist in, in a very ethereal realm that doesn't really touch ground anywhere. Yeah. Well, well, this is the problem. You have a synod that is supposedly a coming together of the entire church, and the communications and all questions within it are utterly incomprehensible to the general public and 99.9% of Catholics worldwide. I mean, I'd love to present this module to, uh, in fact, this would be a fun street gag to go up to people on the street as they come out of church and read them, the, you know, these questions and get images of the looks on their faces. Uh, there were testimonies given at the Synod this week. An interesting perspective came from Orthodox Metropolitan Job of Piseida, uh, and who represents the ecumenical patriarchate to the World Council of Churches. He had this to say about this synod and how it differs from the Eastern understanding of synodality, which has often been evoked. He said, quote, a synod is a deliberative meeting of bishops, not a consultative clergy laity assembly. In light of this, we could say that the understanding of synodality in the Orthodox Church differs greatly from the definition of synodality given by your present assembly of the Synod of Bishops. Though in certain historical circumstances, the Orthodox Church has involved the clergy and laity in synodal decision-making. End quote. Father, your take on the Metropolitan's observations is this synod on synodality a novelty compared to the way synods have been understood in the past, both in the Eastern and Western churches? No, absolutely, Raymond, and this is a crucial and central point. The synod is a meeting of the hierarchs of the church, and the hierarchs means the bishops. So it's the pope and bishops gathered together. Uh, one of the advances at Vatican II was to state that bishops are not simply responsible for their own diocese that they have to have a common concern for the welfare and good of the whole church. And they do that under and with Peter, the, the successor of Peter, the Pope. So to have a meeting in which lay people and priests and deacons and religious are now on an equal footing with bishops, this completely changes the nature. In fact, it really is not a synod precisely as the, as the Orthodox bishop was stating, a synod in the classical and really only sense that we know it. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that lay people don't have good ideas, but they're not equal to bishops. So every synod in the past had experts and what are called auditors. People would listen right. and contribute to the discussion. But now, you know, if, if the cardinal prefect of the Dicastery of Doctrine of the Faith, if his vote is equal to a college student, you know, from Philadelphia, in what, in what sense is this an exercise of the hierarchy? It's not. Bob, has a completely new understanding of synod been created in order to arrive at a preordained conclusion? I mean, it seems all of these, the instrumentum laboris, the document that they're using to guide discussions, uh, we'll talk in a minute about the outcome of this synod, everything is so orchestrated. Is that what we're really moving toward here, a preordained outcome? 
Well, I think, ironically, uh, the Senate is the least synodal of the synods that, that occurred before this, because as the, the uh, Eastern Orthodox bishop rightly said, actually what we had after Paul VI started the Synod of Bishops after uh, Vatican II, what we had, this gathering of bishops, was closer to the Eastern Orthodox idea than this expanded idea that, that, it, that I think we have to say is intended to kind of tilt the entire process in a more democratic uh, direction. There isn't going to be a vote in quite the same way where you get majorities on this and that with everybody uh, equal. But it's clear that this is, this is in an effort at least to provide a sense that, that uh, other people are having input. And it's, it's hard for me not to believe that the surprises that are supposed to come out of this synod, as Cardinal Zen brilliantly said uh, not long ago, that, that certain surprises we can already predict are going to happen. And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah, well, the way this thing has been constructed, I mean, it, it, again, it's a theatrical presentation of participation by the entire church with a preordained outcome. They're not even taking votes that are going to be released to us, you know, broken down by topic and knowing who voted for what, which tells you this. It's it's not really a democratic process either because it's not open enough to be that. So it pretends to be something it's not. And it is masquerading as a synod of bishops, which it demonstrably is not either. And I'd love someone to disprove that to me uh, in the Tuesday brief press briefing. An Italian reporter asked Cardinal Joseph Tobin of Newark about how the church treats LGBT Catholics and uh, what, if anything, had emerged from discussions on that topic. Here's what Tobin had to say. I think the outreach that is a concern is a concern of my diocese, uh, outreach to people who feel that they are not at home in the Catholic Church. You know, um, some years ago I welcomed a uh, pilgrimage of uh, people who felt marginalized because of their sexual orientation, LGBTQ plus people, to the cathedral. And so I think our, the real beauty of our Catholic Church is clear when the doors are open and welcoming. And it's my hope that this uh, synod will help us do that in an even more significant way. Father, for a synod that is only about consultation and dialogue, does the Cardinal seem to be holding out a great hope here for an actual change in practice? Well, it seems to be the case, Raymond, because that topic is precisely in the working document, uh, and it is uh, known that a number of people, including Father James Martin, who were picked to be part of the synod, are supporters of a change in church teaching. James Martin, Father James Martin has said that the catechism of the Catholic Church needs to be changed. Um, and Father Martin is, you know, a supporter of accepting homosexual couples in the church it, as couples, meaning that if they're, you know, living a life uh, in, involving sinful sexual activity, that that shouldn't be an obstacle to participate in the life of the church. You know, what about people in courage? What about people trying to live chastity, people who affirm that sex is about a man and a woman and children being born of that union within the, within the blessing of marriage. Uh, it's very troubling because basically the secular agenda is to say homosexuality is not a problem, the Catholic Church shouldn't treat it as a problem, and therefore they got to lighten up, change the teaching, 
call it what you want, but basically, you know, we're not going to say any more, uh, avoid this serious, sinful behavior that is involved in homosexual activity. That's wrong. It shouldn't happen. I hope that doesn't come out of this synod. Bob, your thoughts, and what of the continual use by church officials, um, uh, you know, they keep invoking the LGBT community, even even when it's not, you know, on uh, an issue up for discussion. It, it seems to be almost a, um, a preoccupation. Well, look, we know that Cardinal Holerich, who is the relator general, sort of the reporter on the, the overall Senate and one of the, the key uh, directors of the overall synodal process said earlier this year that the church is, church's teaching about homosexuality is wrong. Modern science has given us a different understanding, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, though, the Holy Father keeps talking about, well, you can't bless sin. And I hear from readers and people who actually watch this show that I'm misrepresenting or we're misrepresenting what the Holy Father says because he's talking about blessing persons and not blessing sin. Well, at the same time, we're, we're talking about um, same-sex couples being blessed. So this is not simply encouraging somebody to lead a chaste life. This comes back again and again. As I was rereading the documents today, it struck me that the LGBT portion of the welcoming, you know, the welcoming part of what the Senate is supposed to be advancing, is tacked on to the divorced and remarried, which is a different moral question. And then that's tacked on to the question of, of migrants. Well, migrants are not engaged in, in anything immoral, we think. Uh, they're just seeking a better life or they're seeking to, to uh, move out of a dangerous situation. There's a, more, there's a different moral question about the divorced and remarried. And then the, the, the clear teaching of go, going back not only to, to the earliest parts of Christianity, but way back into the law of Moses about LGBT, which is, of course, this this acronym that we keep using as if it means something when, in fact, the L's don't like the T's and, you know, there are all sorts of divisions inside there. There's, there, there's almost like this this uh, this obsession or this this constant focus on something that even if the Holy Father says he, that's not what he's trying to do, somebody is trying to effect a change. And I think that that has to be paid very careful attention to. Cardinal Tobin also responded to a question in English about what he would say to devotees of the traditional Latin Mass who have had to undergo severe restrictions on the celebrations uh, of, of that Mass and themselves feel banished. Uh, what do you say to the Catholics, um, particularly, let's say, from the United States, but not also here in Europe as well, who do not feel represented here um, and who have not, there's nothing in the Instrumentum Laboris to address these people's concerns. Uh, what would you say to those Catholics who do not feel welcome? Well, I, I would say the, um, the experience of feeling banished is, is something that, that is, is sadly part of the signs of the times, not simply for people who... Uh, very much love the traditional mass. People who love the uh, traditional mass, they're still under the conditions of the two motu proprios, as well as the decisions of the dicastery for divine worship. And the, there is, still is opportunities uh, for it, but not perhaps what they've been accustomed to. So I know that it, it is not, uh, it's caused a lot of grief among people who, who uh, particularly identified with that Mass. 
but I don't think they've been banished from the Catholic Church. Mm. Father, your thoughts on Tobin's answer there and this idea that Catholics being thrown out of their parishes or sent to the gym if they want to celebrate the old mass, that that somehow is a sign of the times. Well, you know, number one, it's not banishment from the Catholic Church, it's banishment from parish churches. And that's what uh, Traditionalist Custodes uh, said, and that's what's being enforced uh, with some vigor in different places. Uh, secondly, the, the issue here is banishing. Well, we're not being banished by this government. This isn't some punny coming in and saying you can't have your Latin mass. This comes from the Pope and the Roman Curia. And the question that was asked by the reporter is very telling. Nowhere in the Instrumentum Laboris is any reference made to the alienation felt by Catholics who like the old mass, who can't go to it anymore. The, the Cardinal says the opportunity is available. Well, it's not available the way it was before Traditionalist Custodes. There are a lot of people, a lot of viewers, I'm sure, could tell you, they don't want to drive two hours to go to mass. They would, you know, had it in their neighborhood, now they don't have it. So I think this is a very interesting area because Pope Francis, when he was in Portugal and back here in Rome the other day, he uses the word all. You know, the Catholic Church is for everybody, for all, for all, for all. Well, the people who go to the Latin Mass feel like they've been told all except for you. That needs to be remedied. And this isn't just a concession to some people's nostalgia. This is a justice question. Why in the world would you tell people you can't have Mass in your parish, go to the church hall or the gymnasium? This makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's banished like it's something filthy or dirty that can't be held in the in the sacred parish setting when what's often held in the sacred parish setting, you know, is questionable. Bob, it seems like there is much more pastoral care and concern for other groups within the church or outside of it than there are for these people, for the for those who frequent the Latin mass. And the answer they get is get over it. Yeah, it's. It, I, th I think that Cardinal Chobin's clear uncomfortableness about answering that question tells us a great deal about what's actually going on in the church, because he didn't have a ready answer for that, because there is no ready answer for it. That on the one hand, with the, to use again the, this acronym LGBT, we have we've been told we've got to be welcoming, open, accepting, and we know that in a secular context. Uh, context after the accepting, there's an affirmation, and then there's actually a celebration of, of the, this identity. Whereas, on the other hand, I think that it's not—it's not illegitimate for people who are who are uh, attached to the Latin Mass to feel as if they are basically on life support. They—they've been banished to the peripheries, and maybe those peripheries ought to get some attention as well. Yeah. Well, it's also absurd to believe that young families. And little children that I see coming out of these Latin masses are somehow engaged in some ideological opposition to Vatican II or the Pope. It's absurd. Question them. Talk to them. You'll see. They don't give that a second thought. They're, they wouldn't be in the parish setting if they, they had an objection to Vatican II or the Pope. Anyway, I, I, I could talk all day about this. Also announced this week, the synod delegates elected members of a commission who will oversee the drafting of what they're calling a synthesis report, a summation of everything that was discussed during this month-long assembly. The commission of the synthesis report consists of 13 members, seven elected by the assembly, three appointed by the Pope, three more from the secretary to the Senate. Father, your thoughts on the group that will create this summary, so-called experts, uh, this certainly seems, again, 
preordained and the outcome seems premeditated. Yes, well, the press office announced that the people who are elected and appointed to this commission, they're not actually going to write the synthesis report. They're simply going to mm -hmm. oversee what experts do. And who are the experts? Those are the people who produce the instrumentum laboris. I think 14 members of the exp experts group uh, were involved in com composing the instrumentum laboris. So, you know, this looks like what they call an inside job. Uh, the the <laughs> experts will write up what they want. The review committee will say, uh, okay, uh, good job. Should I question your expertise? <laughs> You're the experts. And then, good job. And then, if they do question it, then the, you know, the experts will say, well, we disagree. Uh, this, this is, you know, this is not the way that an organization that wants free discussion and wants the input from people who have knowledge and experience, this is not how you do things. You don't tell them, you know, the guys in the back room, they're producing the document, we'll send it to you, and you tell us what you think. That's not how you do it. You get actual members of the Senate who say, this is what we want to say. You know, that's how it works. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, uh, a friend of mine cruelly commented, you know, from the people who brought you financing corruption and sex abuse corruption, here comes the Senate. And it's handled in the same way, under the cloak of darkness, we figure things out before we release it to the public, and then we try to cook the results on the back end. This doesn't work. This kind of lack of transparency never works. Bob, Cardinals Hollerick and Greck are on that commission as well. Any reason to think that this summary will be objective or not reflect what we've already heard from those two cardinals personally? Well, look, one of the themes that they keep hitting is that this uh, synod is not to decide it is to discern. Now, it seems to me to discern is to also decide about certain things, but, you know, we can get into the <laughs> philosophical discussion about that. One of the things that I'm worried about is, of course, we can kind of predict what some of the things are that are going to be emphasized, but they're going to be voting or at least approving at the end, the, the, the body of participants, what was said, not what was decided because they're not supposed to not be deciding. And what I want to know is this, is what they're going to report in in this summary document going to be um, every group, for example, every group spoke about LGBT. Well, that's fine. But what did they say about LGBT? Was, was it 80 percent of, you know, this is a road we can't go down? Is it 80 percent who said we must go down this road? Is it 80 percent who said we ought to accept people? Is it 80 percent who say, well, of course, we accept homosexual persons, but not homosexuality? I mean, all those specifics about what the report is going to be about, I think, have been by the structuring of the, the Senate in general and by the the uh, claims that are being made about what the document ought to actually say are going to be taken off the table. So it leaves itself open to enormous manipulation and, and, and leading to predictable outcomes. Uh, Jens, as you recall, uh, last week there was a bit of controversy over Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, who is a synodal father, and his decision to appear on this program. Rome correspondent for the tablet uh, asked Vatican spokesman Paolo Ruffini, if his eminence would be punished for granting the interview. Uh, Christopher Lamb in a tweet wrote this in response to my question about whether Cardinal Mueller's decision to give an interview to EWTN about the Senate affects the rules of confidentiality. Paolo Ruffini says it was up to each Senate member to exercise their own discernment. <laughs> Father, it's most interesting to me that this was what 
Lamb and others decided to take from an hour-long program that delved into various issues surrounding this synod. Rather than engaging anything that Cardinals Burke or Mueller or you and Bob said during that hour, they decided to try to get Cardinal Mueller thrown out of the synod for daring to speak out of turn. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. He cites no break of confidentiality, anything that Mueller said. And if I recall that interview very well. The Cardinal didn't reveal anything that he shouldn't have. Uh, and by the way, uh, why is it that suddenly punishment is introduced into the topic, into the discussion? I thought this was about the work of the spirit. You know, how do we know that Cardinal Mueller didn't feel that he had to come and, you know, tell us, which I'm glad he did, that from his perspective, uh, as he said, well, his table was going pretty well. He was happy with the nature yeah. of the discussion. Now, you know, this, is, this, is, this is what happens when you have a controlled situation. You don't want anybody stepping out of line. My dad used to have a funny line. He, he would say, when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. And I'm feeling that that's going to be the theme here, where the Senate is going to basically say, if you don't like what you're hearing... Uh, don't worry, because that, everybody agrees with it. And then the people who don't agree, well, they're under confidentiality. No, I think there's going to be at some point, there's got to be a breakdown where people say, look, uh, let people talk. You know, the, the, the Holy Spirit inspires lots of people. It shouldn't be the idea that the writing committee's the only expression of the wisdom from on high. Gentlemen, we will leave it there uh, for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray and regular Synod podcasts from Rome. Visit thecatholicthing.org. He's a comedian, author, and Fox News contributor, and he's here tonight to talk about his moving, hilarious, award-winning one-man show, Spontaneous Combustion. It's based on his childhood experiences growing up in Massachusetts, and he's taking the show on the road this weekend to Texas. Please welcome to the program my pal Tom Shalou. Tom, thanks for being here. Now, folks are probably most familiar with you from your appearances on Gutfeld, of course, Red Eye, which you hosted. Uh, earlier this year, you unveiled this hilarious and touching solo show, Spontaneous Combustion. It's one best solo show at the 2023 United Solo Festival, and it focuses on your childhood and upbringing in Massachusetts. What inspired you to create this show? And why the title, Spontaneous Combustion? Well, the Spontaneous Combustion is a story about my mom. But this show was inspired by stuff I found out about my dad. My dad passed away in 2019. My mom passed away last year. And at her, after her funeral, we went through all of her things. And I found my dad's filing cabinet full of what I call a treasure trove of poetry and prose. I'm talking thousands of pages wow. of writing that I never knew existed. And I'm reading through the poetry and I'm finding out secrets about my dad. Now, I made a career doing jokes about my dad. You know, I wrote Mean Dads for a Better America. My dad was always the mean dad, the butt of the joke. Like I always said, he was like Darth Vader with a Boston accent. And so, you know, I would always joke about my dad as the mean dad. But my dad had a deeper and softer side that I found out about in this treasure trove of poetry and prose. So I'm just going to read a little wow. stanza from a poem. Here's one of the first poems yeah. I found. I want to go and climb a tree with boyhood friend Joe Happeny, and we'll explore the world that was, the good and bad, and all we've had to do. Joe Happeny, someone I had never heard of, but apparently a boyhood friend of my dad. Now, my dad wasn't always a mean dad. Huh. There was a time that he turned from mean dad to mellow dad. In 1985, I came home from school. My dad was crying in a chair. He was, he was weeping hmm. in a chair. I'd never seen my dad cry before. 
And then a few days later, mm -hmm. I saw him crying behind the wheel of the car. And then I saw him crying out at the picnic table. I never had seen huh. this man cry. He was going through something, but I wasn't going to say anything to him. I mean, you know, this, this was my dad, right? So, you know, I just backed yeah. away each time. That remained a mystery to me until last year. Now, my dad went through all sorts of changes in 1985. He quit his job in the computer business. He opened up a Dairy Queen and he went into the ice cream huh. business. So all of these changes, huh. I didn't understand where they came from. But I read, I read you this poem, huh. Joe Happeny, his boyhood friend. And then mm -hmm. I open up a letter. This was written to Beverly Happeny in 1985. And this is how the letter starts. I will never recover huh. from the shock of Joe's death. Oh. My father... His childhood friend, Joe Happeny, passed away in 1985. This was the man whose death made my father cry in the chair and at the picnic table and behind the wheel mm. of his car, and I never knew about it. He goes on to describe wow. his childhood in detail in this letter, and that's what I bring to life on the stage. I take you back and, and, to Hyde Park in the 1940s. And, Tom, these are things he never discussed with you, he never personally shared with you. He never did. And I wasn't going to pry. I mean, we, we had a very good relationship as adults. We would get together. We'd hike together. We'd go for long drives in the car. But we wouldn't talk about deep things. This is the kind of stuff my dad would pour out his feelings in this writing. And then he would put it in the filing cabinet and he would never tell anyone about it. And so when I went through all of this stuff, there was poems about me in here from when I was a little kid. There's one that says, Tommy wow. doesn't ever like to wear shoes. He thinks that having leather on is some kind of bad news. I thought, I didn't know I was such a barefoot boy. <laughs> you know, those of us who are of a certain age, I mean, these, when, you, when you go through a loved one's possessions after they pass, that these things evoke sadness and joy and, and, and resurrect all sorts of memories. Tell us a little bit about your parents. I mean, they were certainly very different personalities. I mean, this must have given you, of course, lots of material. Well, of course, my dad, like I said, was kind of the scary figure, the disciplinarian. My mom was tough as well, but she was more tough in terms of teaching us lessons. Like she wanted to teach us the value of a dollar. And she, she, you know, she, she was like, you would, you what you'd call cheap, you know, but she just didn't want us to spend money. And she was also the domestic engineer of our home and she wanted to stretch my dad's paychecks. But she was also an artist. She would paint and she would do watercolors and she would go to uh, art shows and she would sell her work to make extra money, you know, to stretch my dad's uh, paycheck as well. And she created something called the Pet Rock in the 1970s. She would paint rocks different colors and sell them as paperweights for a dollar. OK, and then this guy huh. named Gary Knoll, he creates uh, Gary Knoll. He creates the Pet Rock and he sells millions of them and he becomes a millionaire. And my mother said, that guy stole my idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, tell me, what did you learn about your mother and father that surprised you most working on this show? I mean, obviously, the revelation as you went through these letters, through the poetry. But what surprised you that you didn't expect to find? You know, what surprised me was the love, because, you know, my dad was very affectionate to my mom. He would come home and smother her with kisses because she always had a roast ready for him. But the tenderness, uh, my dad, the, the poem I read about Joe Happeny, his boyhood friend, it actually ends with a tribute to my mom. I want to go on a wedding trip with her, my wife, not on a ship, but in a car. She'll be so near <laughs> that even I who hold her dear can hear her. And that's the poem that I close the show with. And like I said, I say at the beginning of the show, 
this isn't going to seem like it, but it's a love story because in the end, he's talking mm -hmm. about his boyhood friend. He's talking about his carefree life. And then he closes, of course, with the love of his life, my mom. What do you hope audiences take away from spontaneous combustion? What's the message here? Well, you know, it's really about there. I wouldn't change anything about my dad. He was a very private man. And I guess there, there's you can't look back and say, oh, I wish we knew all about all of this while he was around. You know, there's something wonderful about finding out about all of this now. But I guess the message would be, you know, you can you you can you don't have to bury it in the filing cabinet. My dad took his feelings and he was a he was a private man. He was uh, he, he was he was like the old he was like the, the Gary Cooper figure. But he would keep all his feelings in that mm. filing cabinet. And at the end of the show, after reading all this heartfelt stuff from my dad and now his work has a chance to shine in Broadway theaters, which is amazing. I did this show off Broadway and I'm thinking my dad finally made it to yeah. Broadway and he didn't even know it. But <laughs> <laughs> I say, you know, my dad probably wouldn't have allowed me to read this stuff in public because he was such a mm. private man. But like I say at the end of the show, too late now, Dad. <laughs> Nothing you can do <laughs> well, about it. You get it. the last word, Tom. <laughs> and he was a faithful man, too. I mean, you were telling me a little about his faith life as well, right? Yes. And he there's a moment in the show, actually, when I you can imagine, uh, Raymond, after I first got to New York and I was trying to be a big man and trying to get my name on Broadway, playing comedy clubs. And, you know, maybe I was missing mass, Raymond. And my dad came to town and he sat there at the diner and he looks up over his coffee and he says, where's your parish? And I thought, oh, boy, I had neglected <laughs> to get myself a parish before my dad came to visit. So we went yeah, to St. Always Paul's. a good tip. Oh, yeah. And we went to St. Paul's together. Well, and I said, because uh, I, I knew there was a St. Paul's on the corner up the street from me. So I was ready. I said, St. Paul's. And my dad says, ah, uh, left wing. And I said, oh, really? I said, the Paulists are left wing. He said, what are you kidding me? They're more liberal than the Jesuits. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, and he had a good he had a good read on the on the times as well, Tom. We will leave it there. Uh, Tom show. But catch Tom Shalhoub in spontaneous combustion in Fort Worth on Saturday, October 14th, Houston on Sunday, October 15th. Visit Tom Shalhoub dot com for more information and uh, and you can get tickets there as well. Tom, I cannot wait to see the show myself. So I uh, have a great time and Thank we'll you, catch Raymond. up with you later. Thank you, my friend. Thanks so much. And the magnificent mischief of Tad Lincoln is out in stores now. Look, it's been so incredible seeing you all on the road, signing your books, talking to you, sharing this story. It occurred to me this week that this book is really about finding hope and joy during dark times. That's what Tad Lincoln's magnificent mischief is really all about. It gave his father a glimmer of joy in an otherwise dark landscape. And it also is the backstory, the origins of a national holiday tradition. Families just love it. I know yours will, too. It's available now at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, the EWTN catalog, wherever books are sold. And be sure to catch me on my next book tour stop, Nashville and Franklin, I'm coming to see you this Saturday, October 14th at 3 p.m. I'll be at the Barnes & Noble in Cool Springs, Tennessee. Cannot wait. Visit RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. I hope to see you there. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week for another update on the Synod and much more. Until then, I'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo.
Bye now.